uh, we always call us every year. It's a week later this year, and we were talking last night. We weren't quite sure why. We always have Brother Young in February. I was looking at my um, Facebook the other day, and it was six or seven years ago, and I know he's been coming every year since then. I think there was a time before that. It's been a while anyways, and so it's always good to have him with us. And uh, I was thinking back, you know, you, you have guest speakers in, and then sometimes you have them back each year and everything. So I was thinking about Brother Young. Why do we have him every year? So I had a couple thoughts on that. I'll give you, I'll give you, state. he always gives statements or points. He gives you one, two, three, and four. But um, number one reason why we have him back every year is because he helps our people every time he's here. And so um, I would say um, he was the president of the college that I went to during that time. And so I got to have a few classes and different things with him. But we have really grown quite a friendship in these years. And I, that's probably my, I love our friendship and I'm grateful for it. We'll text often throughout the year. But I don't have people into our church because they're my friends. Because I can just ha have them come and we can go spend time and do something together. We have people in a church that are a blessing and a help. And Brother Young's always been that way. And already, first service, it was a huge blessing. And so I'm grateful for your friendship. Grateful for you willing to come every year. And I know it's hard to travel from 30 degree, 25 degree, Hammond, Indiana, to come to sunny, 75 degree California. I know that's hard. And so I know why he, I know part of the reason he comes, that's right, right there, but he was in Alaska last Sunday. Think about that one, this time of year in Alaska. And so he travels almost every week. So we're grateful that he's here with us. Brother Young, you come. very much. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Genesis. If you'd open the book of Genesis chapter 6, please. Book of Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to hand you this so it won't be in my way, and I'm going to drink some of this <laughs> right quick since I've already spoken once. While you're turning to Genesis chapter 6, thank you very much. I'd like to ask you a question this morning. If you knew the will of God, would you want to be willing to do it? If you personally knew the will of God for your life, would you want to be willing to do the will of God for your life? In Genesis chapter 6, the reason I ask you to turn there is because that is the first place in the Bible where God mentions the heart of man. And I want to show you what he says here in Genesis chapter 6. Look at uh, verse 5. Genesis 6, 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm going to make four statements this morning. The pastor accuses me of giving points or making statements and so I don't want to let I don't want to let him down so I'm going to give you four statements this morning the first statement is this that man's thoughts are connected to his heart you know you and I think of our thoughts as coming from our brain <laughs> you know we say it just popped in my brain but actually it popped out of our heart our thoughts are connected to our heart. Now, there's many examples all through the Bible of different places where it, 
illustrates and shows that our thoughts are connected to our heart. But I want to show you one of those examples. So hold your place there in the book. And by the way, if you don't mind, we're going to use our Bible a lot this morning. Uh, I'm not really preaching what you typically call a Sunday morning service. This is a sermon. This is a little bit more like a Bible study. So we're going to use our Bible a lot. So hold your place in the book of Genesis. We'll come back there in a moment. But turn to Acts chapter 8, if you would, please. Acts chapter 8. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you come to Acts. And if you look at Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, there is a, uh, a, 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 a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. His name is Philip. And Philip, the deacon, left Jerusalem and went down to Samaria. And in Samaria, he preached a revival. And in that revival meeting, several people got saved. One of the people who got, one of the persons who got saved in that revival meeting, his name was Simon. He was what you and I today would call a witch doctor. Uh, the Bible talks about him bewitching people or using sorcery. Uh, some people might call him a sorcerer, but we'd probably call him a witch doctor. And this witch doctor got saved. Well, after he and several others had gotten saved, then Peter and John also came down to Samaria. And when they got there, they laid hands on some Christians. And those Christians were filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, here's Simon, this former witch doctor. He's a brand new Christian. He hasn't really figured it all out yet and put it all together. And so he's thinking, wow, what a neat trick. (laughs) They can lay hands on people, and they are filled with the Holy Ghost. And so he offers Peter and John some money, and he says, I'll pay you if you'll teach me to do this trick. Now, I don't know. There might have been a little tinge of sincerity in his heart that he really wanted to do something for God, you know, but he, didn't, he, didn't, he hadn't figured it out yet that you don't pay for this. But, but uh, uh, And I'm not teaching anything this morning from the book of Acts. I'm just using this as, a, uh, as an illustration. So don't wonder, like, where's he going with this? I'm just going to show you uh, that, our heart, that our thoughts are connected to our heart. Look in Acts chapter 8, and Peter answers Simon in verse 22. I'm in Acts 8, 22. Peter says to Simon, the former witch doctor, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So my first point is simply this. Our thoughts are connected to our heart. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to quickly reread verse 5. So I'm going back now. If you'll turn all the way back to the book of Genesis, and if you would, if you'd turn with us to all these different places, I feel like you'll understand and get a little bit more out of the message. So I'm going to reread verse 5. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So my second statement is this. My first statement was that our thoughts are, and I almost said thoughts because we always think of it as coming from our brain but but our thoughts are connected to our heart okay my second statement is this man's heart is evil you know my dad taught me lots of things i grew up in the country on a little farm and my dad taught me uh how to uh, plant a garden how to cut a row with a hoe and 
how to put the peas in and how far apart to put them and how deep to bury them and, and how to plant the sweet potatoes one way and, and plant the, 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 the white potatoes a different way. And, and, and he taught me uh, uh, to, to put a stake in the ground and let the tomato grow up the stake. And he taught me to let the, uh, the cucumbers and the, uh, uh, the uh, 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 cantaloupe grow on the ground. He taught me which uh, peas to pick when they were still moist and which ones to wait until they dried and pick them. And he taught me uh, how to uh, 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 hammer a nail. He taught me how to cut a board with a, saw, a hand saw, with a skill saw, with a table saw. He taught me how to milk a cow. He taught me how to feed a calf. You know, my dad never taught me how to lie. He never sat me down one day and said, Son, today we're going to work on lying. And tomorrow we'll work on getting angry. <laughs> and the next day we'll practice in being selfish. <laughs> he, 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 he didn't have to teach me those things. Man's heart is evil. So my thoughts, here I go again, my thoughts are connected to my heart. And my heart is evil. Now let's look at the next verse, verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he had, I'm in, I'm in Genesis 6, 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him, God, at his heart. So my third statement is this. First, my, my first statement was that my thoughts are connected to my heart. My second statement is my heart's evil. My third statement is this. The condition of man's heart grieves God's heart. You see, it said there, he said, it grieves my heart, God said, uh, uh, that, 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 uh, that the condition, that, the, the, that man's heart, it, uh, it, the condition of man's heart grieves God's heart. And then the fourth statement is this, look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and the fowls of the air, and it repenteth me that I have made them. Notice verse 7 began with the word and. So what we just read is God's announcement that he's going to destroy the whole world with a flood. And the reason he made that decision was based on the fact that man's heart is evil and his thoughts are connected to his heart. So the point, my, my fourth point is this. The condition of man's heart is very important to God. One of the biggest decisions he ever made. <laughs> Destroy the whole earth with a flood. And by the way, that's not a fairy tale where you draw some little cartoon figures and the kids paint and the kids color the different animals and, and so forth. That's a, that's a real historical event that actually happened. God destroyed the whole earth, every living creature except, you know, two of each and, and the eight human beings, and you know the story. But, but, but that decision that God made, that's a big decision. He made it based on the condition of man's heart. Let me show you another decision he made based on the condition of man's heart. Turn to chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. This is after the flood. Look at verse 21. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I said Acts. I meant Genesis. Turn, turn the page to Genesis uh, chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, just a couple of pages over from Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 8, a look at verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. 
So the, one of the biggest decisions God ever made was to destroy the whole earth, and that was based on the condition of our heart. One of the biggest decisions God ever made was to never destroy the earth again. Okay, I'm going to use a phrase that's a little sacrilegious because, all right, but I'm going to say, when it dawned on God, and nothing ever dawned on God. He always knew everything. But to put it in mind in your language, when it dawned on God, hey, if I keep destroying the earth, every time I get grieved about man's heart, I'm just going to destroy it over and over and over. So based on the fact that your heart and my heart is evil from our youth, he said, okay, I won't ever do that again. The point I'm making is the condition of our heart is very important to God. In fact, it's so important, so far in my Bible studies, I have found 132 different descriptions of man's heart in the Bible. And I doubt I'm finished yet. I'm, I'll probably find some more eventually. But so far, I have found 106. Now, when I say 132 different descriptions of man's heart, I don't mean three or four descriptions that God repeats 132 times. I mean 132 different descriptions of man's heart. 106 of those descriptions so far that I have found is the kind of heart that God does not want me and you to have. You know, God does not want me and you to have a, uh, a sorrowful heart or a lifted up heart or a deceived heart or wicked or turned away or faint or trembling or fearful or and don't worry I'm not going to read all 106 of them but God does not want us to have a grieved heart or proud or forward or wounded haughty deceitful bitter backslidden foolish hasty rebellious stony wicked uh, weak exalted uh, all of those kinds of heart God does not want me and you to have those but I have found so far 26 different hearts that God does want us to have and again don't get scared I'm not going to tell you all 26 of them but we're going to look at three of them this morning this morning we're going to look at three of the kinds of heart that God wants me and you to have the first one I'm going to use as an example it's not necessarily the first one God wants us to have but the first one I'm going to use as an example is the fact that God wants me and you to have a soft heart. You remember what Job said? He said, God maketh my heart soft. Remember what David said? Harden not your heart. Again, let me show you an example. I want to show you an example of uh, somebody having a hard heart. Would you turn to the book of Mark in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark in the New Testament. And turn to chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is has told the disciples that he wants them to get in a boat and row across the Sea of Galilee over to the other side. And it's in the middle of the night, and they get about halfway across, and a big storm comes, and they're rowing as hard as they can, and they can't make any progress, and they're kind of stuck there. And so Jesus walks on top of the water. It walks out there to them. And when he gets out there to them, let's look at chapter 6, verse 51. I'm in Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 51. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he, Jesus, went up unto them, the disciples, into the ship. And the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, 
For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. He had just fed the 5,000, uh, that story. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Isn't that interesting? Here you have 12 or at least 11 of the best Christians in the whole world at that particular time. Out of all the people on the earth, out of all the saved people, out of everyone that was called a disciple, he chose 12 to be his apostles. And even those apostles had a hard heart. At least in this one area, they forgot about the loaves. And, and, and they had this hard heart about they just, they just couldn't figure out how in the world this guy could walk on the water. All right, turn to chapter 16. I'm still in the book of Mark. Turn to chapter 16. Now, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's come back. He's appearing here to the disciples. Look in chapter 16 at verse 14. Mark chapter 16, verse 14 says, Afterward he, Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them. Can I help you just for a minute here? The word upbraided, I want to help you understand that word. Uh, the pastor mentioned that, that I work at a college. I've worked there for 46 years. And with all that educational experience I have, I want to interpret this word for you. Upbraided, <laughs> what it means is he ripped their face off. That's the way you and I would word it today. He ripped their face off, all right? Let's, look, let's see what he said. Verse 14, Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them, ripped their face off, upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. The point I want to make is this. The best Christians in the world at that time, 11, I guess they were the 11 best Christians in the world. You and I have heard the gospel here in America in our lifetime because God chose to use those 11 men. Those 11 men are the ones who got the gospel started around the world. I mean, if he's going to do something as important as get the gospel to the whole world, he's going to pick out some of the best Christians there are. And those 11 best Christians had a hard heart in at least one area of their life. You know, the best Christian in this room this morning, and when I say the best Christian, I don't mean the one who thinks he's the best Christian. <laughs> whoever that is probably is not the best Christian. <laughs> but, but, uh, but whoever the best Christian is in this room this morning, I, I don't know, you know, whoever sincerely loves the Lord the most, whoever sincerely reads the Bible and likes to get things out of it, the one who uh, 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 tithes and gives the offering and, and passes out tracts and wins books to Christ and brings visitors to church. I mean, the one who is sincerely the best Christian in this room this morning could have a hard heart in at least one area of my life or your life. Can you imagine the 11 people that Jesus personally chose and hand trained? He had to say to them, a bunch of hard-hearted, wicked. <laughs> I mean, he upbraided them. 
Now, you know, I think upbraided is a nice way to word it so we don't have to hear exactly what he said to them. You know, you know, sometimes when your, your, your younger brother, your younger sister got taken in the bedroom and you could hear mom in there upbraiding him, <laughs> but you didn't hear the exact words, <laughs> I think that's what happened here. He upbraided them because of the hardness of their heart. Even if I were, and I'm not saying I am, but even if I were a good Christian, there might be something in my heart where I'm hard towards God. Is there any possibility uh, that that could be true of you also? Could there be something this morning in my heart or your heart where we've hardened our heart towards God, at least in that one little area? Let me show you an example in the Bible where it is possible to have a hard heart in just one area. Turn now, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the uh, fifth book in the Bible, and turn to chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15, and I want to show you an example this morning of someone having a hard heart in just one area or, or in just over one issue. Okay, look at chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. You see what I'm saying here? It is possible that you might be a... Okay, if you were living in that day and you heard that commandment right there given, it would be possible for you to pray. Uh, it'd be possible for you to go to church. It'd be possible for you to pass out tracts. It'd be possible for you to uh, turn in your tithe. It would be possible for you to read your Bible. And then when you saw somebody had a need, you closed your hand and didn't help him with his need because your heart was hard in that one particular area. Now, today we would say uh, uh, he closed his wallet. Uh, we'd say he, he closed his checkbook. We'd say he logged off his account, uh, you, you know, from, from his banking account. Uh, okay, so, the, and by the way, don't get scared. The pastor didn't ask me to teach on this so we can take up a big offering this morning. I, I'm just using this as an example. In this one area, it is possible that you can have a hard heart in one area. Okay, turn now, if you would, to the book of uh, 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 Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. The first, and by the way, the next two are much quicker. We spend a lot more time on that one than we will the next two. But the first example I, I want to show you is that we're supposed to have a soft heart. The second example I want to show you is this, that we're supposed to have a willing heart. All right, look, if you would, in Exodus chapter 25, and I'm going to read verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. And don't get scared. We're, we're not talking, teaching about offerings this morning. But uh, of every man that giveth it 
willingly, that's what I want you to notice, willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. Now turn to chapter 35. I'm still in the book of Exodus, chapter 35. I want to show you that God wants us to have a soft heart, in fact, so soft that we are willing to do whatever God wants us to do. Look at chapter 35 and verse 5. Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass, and then it goes on to talk about uh, different skins and woods and spices and stones, precious stones and so forth that they were to bring. But the point I'm making is this. God wants me and you to have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to do whatever God Here's my third one, stirs us to do. God wants us to have a stirred heart. But it doesn't do God any good to stir my heart if my heart's not soft enough to be willing to do what God stirs me to do. Let, let me show you an example of that, all right? Look at chapter 35. I'm still in Exodus chapter 35, and look at verse 21. Exodus 35, 21 says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing, and they brought, the Lord's, uh, they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. They were taking up an offering to build the tabernacle. And, uh, and for all his service and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets and all jewels of gold and every uh, man that offered offering uh, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. So the point I'm making here is this: God stirred their heart to bring an offering. But now sometimes God will stir your heart to do something else. Every single time the word willing heart is mentioned in the Bible, it always refers to giving something to God. But when God stirs your heart, it might be to give something or it might be to do something. Look, if you would, in chapter 36. This is the last place we'll look. Uh, chapter 36, I'm still in the book of Exodus, and I'm looking at verse 1 in chapter 36. Then wrought Bezaliel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man, in whom the Lord had, uh, in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding, to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, according to all that God had commanded. And Moses called Bezaliel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. So, look, if you look at me just for a second, we're just about done here. What I, the point I'm making is this. God wants me to have a heart that is soft enough that it is willing to do whatever God stirs my heart to do. And in this particular example, he stirred some of them to bring an offering. He stirred some others to do part of the work. So the question this morning is, what is God stirring Ray Young's heart to do? What is God stirring Brother Osgood's heart to do? What is God stirring Brother Joe's heart to do? What is God stirring your heart to do this morning? 
1970, my former pastor, uh, his name was Dr. Jack Hiles, uh, the man who started Hiles Anderson College, you know, the college from which your pastor graduated, well, he thinks he graduated. He never figured out the difference in being expelled and graduating. Uh, but, well, the college from which his wife graduated. <laughs> but but uh, uh, my pastor, Dr. Hiles, he was out here in Southern California. He was in Pen uh, uh, Pomona one night, and God stirred his heart to start a college. And it wound up being called Hiles Anderson, the other man who started helped him start it, Hiles Anderson College. Well, Brother Hiles came home from being out here in California that night, and he got up on a Wednesday night, and he announced to our church, God stirred my heart to start a college. And he said to the church, now I wasn't there yet, I came the third year of the college, but he said to the church, uh, uh, you know, I feel like if we have a college and if we keep it going long enough, maybe someday God might give us as many as 300 students in our college. He said, so I feel like we ought to build a campus that would house maybe 250, maybe 275 students. He said that way, and then several years from now, if we ever have 300, maybe we can remodel, expand a little bit. We could accommodate 300 people. So they bought 27 acres in a swampy area, not uh, about 12 miles from the church. They drained it and, and started building buildings, and they built a campus that would accommodate about 250 college students. <laughs> and the first year the college was open, 368 students enrolled. So Brother Howells knew he was in trouble. <laughs> Boy, he started scrambling. He thought, man, I don't have time to build another campus, and it took it two and a half years to build that one, and so, lo and behold, seven miles down the road, there was a campus he had never noticed before, uh, a, a, a Catholic uh, a monastery. They were training monks there at that monastery. So, Brother Hiles went out and sat down with them and told them, I'd like to buy your campus from you. And they said, well, first of all, it's not for sale. And they said, second, us Catholics, <laughs> if we ever do sell our campus, the Baptists will be the last group we sell it to. <laughs> and Brother Hiles said, I don't know if he said it out loud or not, but at least in his heart he said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> the Baptists will be the last group you sell it to. <laughs> and so for the next year, every month, one night a month, Brother Hiles went to that campus after midnight. He took his shoes off, and he walked around the perimeter of that 100-acre campus and he prayed that God would give us that campus. About a year and a half later, they called Brother Hiles from the campus. And they said, you know, the most amazing thing has happened. Our enrollment has plummeted down to where we only have seven students left. Would you still want to buy our campus? So Brother Hiles went out and sat down and negotiated with them. And they signed a contract that we would lease the campus for two years. And at the end of the two years, the lease payments would be our down payment, and we would purchase $2.5 million cash we would pay at the end of the two years. And Brother Howes always said when he signed the contract that night for $2.5 million, he didn't have $2.5. <laughs> so we started raising money, doing everything we could. And by that time I was there, I was a student, we went door-to-door -door selling Bibles and doing all kinds of things. And it came right down to the last minute. We were supposed to have $2.5 million on December the 31st, 1975. In fact, we got so close to the deadline, 
and weren't, weren't anywhere close to having the right amount of money that when the students, myself and the rest of us, there was about 600 of us there by then, when we all went home for Christmas that year, we had to turn in our name and home address to the front office because if they didn't get the $2.5 million by December 31st, about two weeks later, they were going to mail us our stuff. They were going to pack up our clothes and books and mail it all home to us. Back up a few months prior to that, one Sunday morning, First Baptist Church of Hammond, in the morning service, not one word had been said about the college. Not one word had been said about the $2.5 million dollars. Not one word that particular moment had been that particular morning had been said about the deadline. We were taking up the offering. There was a lady sitting over here on this side. She saw the offering plates going up and down the rows, coming back towards her. And all of a sudden, something stirred her heart. She reached down in her purse, she grabbed a piece of paper, and she quickly wrote sell this and apply it to the college. And she reached down and pulled off her wedding bands and put them in that little piece of paper and crumpled it up and dropped it in the offering plate. The same time she was doing that in this 4,500-seat auditorium, jam-packed, extra chairs, full building, not one word had been said that morning about the college. Sitting over here on this side, there was another lady. And she saw the offering plates coming towards her. And something suddenly stirred her heart. And she reached for her Bible, and she flipped through it and found a blank piece of paper. She pulled it out, and she quickly wrote, sell this and apply it to the college. And reached down and pulled her wedding bands off and put them in that little piece of paper and crumpled it up. Put them in the offering plate. While those two ladies on the main floor were doing that, there was a third lady up in the balcony. Did the exact same thing. And that afternoon, when the deacons counted the offering for our church, there were 83 sets of wedding bands in the offering plates. Well, the house had never one time. You know, no pastor in the world... <laughs> would get up and say, I'd like all the ladies in the room this morning, take your wedding bands off. And Brother House had never recommended anything vaguely similar to that. So the question this morning is, does Ray Young have a heart that is soft enough that Ray Young would be willing to do anything God stirred his heart to do? The other question, the twin question to that is, do you have a heart that is soft enough that you would be willing to do anything God stirred your heart to do? I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed.